You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Caroline Pitfield, and I'm a senior associate at Santa's Health. Today, I'm joined by Karen Lee, the CEO of Parkinson Canada, Dr. Tony Lang, a movement disorder specialist, and Liz Lowen, a member of the Parkinson Advisory Council, who also lives with Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is the fastest growing neurological disorder in the world. Over 100,000 Canadians live with the disease. More than 25 people are diagnosed every day and more than 6,600 new cases are diagnosed each year in this country. Canada actually has one of the highest rates of Parkinson's in the world. Currently, there's no test for Parkinson's, there's no treatment to stop it from progressing and there is no cure. With April being Parkinson's Awareness Month and April 11th being World Parkinson's Day, Parkinson Canada is sharing the story of the why. Why is it that Parkinson's continues to be so prominent in Canada? As well as the how. How is it that the four pillars of support that Parkinson Canada provides can make a real difference in those living with the disease? These pillars are funding critical research, providing support programs and resources, advocating alongside people living with Parkinson's, and building awareness for the disease. In this episode, we will be approaching the topic of Parkinson's from three different perspectives, research, lived experience, and advocacy. Dr. Tony Lang is a movement disorder specialist in Toronto. He is a professor and previous director of the Division of Neurology at the University of Toronto. He holds the Jack Clark Chair for Parkinson's Disease Research and the Lily Safra Chair in Movement Disorders. He's also the director of the Edmund J. Safra Program in Parkinson's Disease, the Rossi Progressive Supranuclear Palsy Program, and the Morton and Gloria Schulman Movement Disorders Clinic at the Toronto Western Hospital and the University of Toronto. Liz Lowen volunteers with Parkinson's Canada as a member of the Parkinson's Advisory Council. She was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's in 2019. In addition to her lived experience with Parkinson's, Liz brings her professional experience as a nurse with over two decades in health informatics and health system leadership. Karen Lee is the president and CEO of Parkinson Canada. Prior to joining Parkinson Canada in early 2020, she spent 12 years at the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada. Most recently, she was Vice President of Research and Managing Director of NMS Research and Training Network and a very valued member of the management team. I also want to share that this is a disease that has also impacted me personally. My dad was diagnosed with it when I was a teen, and he lived with the disease for 25 years. As his caregiver, so did I in a sense, albeit much more indirectly. I feel very privileged to be able to sit down with these three and to have this conversation today. Many thanks to you all for joining us today, and welcome. Dr. Lang, I'd like to go to you to help set up this discussion for us. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about Parkinson's, who does it affect, and and maybe some of the science as well behind the disease. Well, Parkinson's disease is classified as a neurodegeneration, meaning that nerve cells in the brain are degenerated or dying for reasons that we don't understand. This fits with a large number of other neurodegenerations. Alzheimer's is the commonest, and Parkinson's is the second commonest neurodegeneration. Uh, Age plays a very important role. So this is a part of a group of age-related neurodegenerative diseases. And Parkinson's disease manifests quite a large variety of clinical features. Generally, most people think of the slowness and the stiffness and the shaking tremor and the walking problem. And yes, those are all features 
that are quite critical for us to make a diagnosis. But we now recognize that there is a long list of what we call non-motor features. So for example, constipation, depression, anxiety, cognitive disturbances, troubles with bowels and bladder and blood pressure control. So a very long list of other features. Parkinson's, as I mentioned, begins generally in older age, but we do see people with that same disorder beginning at younger ages, even before the age of, of 30. Uh, but it does occur more commonly in the elderly. And so the average age of onset is between 60 and 70 usually. Um, and it is like all neurodegenerative diseases, a slowly progressive one. And we don't know why the condition progresses. This applies to all neurodegenerations and is probably the biggest unmet need for all neurodegenerations. That is treatment that slows the progression of the disease. In Parkinson's, we have a lot of treatments that help the symptoms. And in the early disease stage, we have treatment that's incredibly effective, almost miraculous. Levodopa replaces the deficient chemical in the brain, dopamine, that most people have heard of. And the loss of dopamine in Parkinson's accounts for a lot of the motor features. So replacing that with levodopa is extremely effective. However, that treatment doesn't change the degeneration, the loss of the nerve cells. And over time, that treatment fails to address a lot of symptoms that are not based in the loss of dopamine. And so increasingly over time, as I've mentioned, many of those non-motor features have nothing to do with the loss of dopamine. And so as they become more bothersome and disabling, the levodopa and dopamine replacement treatments are not that helpful for, for those features. So that's the basic uh, nature of the disease. And then finally, all neurodegenerations now are classified and diagnosed on the basis of the deposition of certain proteins in the brain. These are normally active proteins, or at least they're normally the proteins have normal function, but in these de degenerative diseases, these proteins are thought to gain what are called toxic effects they misfold and they develop the ability to cause the damage to nerve cells. And so increasingly we're seeing the development of treatment that is designed to try to remove the toxic protein. And in Parkinson's disease, it's important for the audience to have heard the name alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein is the protein that is the hallmark of the pathology of Parkinson's disease. We actually see its aggregation under the microscope and how that develops, why it develops, how it spreads, and how we can control it is a whole field trying to understand the cause, the source of the progression, and potentially the treatment, and maybe even the ability to stop it from progressing and even reverse it somewhat. That's all down the line, but those are the hopes. Thank you for that, Dr. Lang. Preparing for this, I came across a, uh, a stat that was really striking to me, and that is that Parkinson's is the fastest growing neurological disorder in the world. Uh, it's very striking and also a little bit frightening. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the causes of the disease and why we might be seeing that increased prevalence. I think it's first important to recognize that we now think in general of the concept of Parkinson's diseases not just a single disease. And so even under, though under the microscope, we may not be able to tell the difference, 
it may be that there are many causes and those causes probably combine the genetics we were born with and those genes may both contribute to and even protect us from the development of Parkinson's. And then there are probably a host of environmental factors as well. Toxins in the environment, past viral infections, a variety of other factors that probably in their own right are not sufficient, but when combined with those genetic factors, and it's not just a single genetic factor, it may be a host of genetic features that combine with a, ver a variety of environmental factors to make up Parkinson's in an individual patient. So it may be that all of those factors are increasing the environment. And then remember I said age is the most important risk factor. And as our population continues to age, that factor plays a huge role in the increasing number of people with Parkinson's too. So we've got all of these things in a perfect storm that ends up resulting in Parkinson's being the fastest progressing and commonest uh, neurodegenerative disease. I was also struck um, when you were talking, you, you talked a little bit about the tremendous impact of levodopa when people with Parkinson's start taking it. And I shared off the top that my father had Parkinson's and I do remember that. I also remember sort of further on in his, his time with Parkinson's, he had bilateral deep brain stimulation, which also had a huge impact on his quality of life. You sounded quite hopeful when you were describing the science here. And I'm wondering, what do you see on the horizon in terms of um, progressions or things we might discover to help treat? or cure or understand this disease? I think you're right. The treatments we have now can be remarkably effective, but they're remarkably effective for selected features. And unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of other features that are resistant or respond minimally to the treatment that we have currently. And that's why we need a better understanding of the underlying biology, the mechanism of the cells being damaged and dying. Uh, I think we're on the verge of very reliable diagnostic tests that will allow us to differentiate Parkinson's from other conditions that can mimic it. And so we'll be able to make a diagnosis far earlier. And one of the reasons for wanting to make a very early diagnosis is not to give somebody a longer period of time where they can worry about having the disease. That's not what we want to do. It's actually trying to make an early diagnosis to provide successful what we call disease-modifying therapy, treatment that will uh, slow the progression of the, the disease. We don't have disease-modifying therapy now, but there's a lot of hope with many different avenues being very aggressively pursued. And we, it may be that we're going to need combinations of therapy. Many of us think of Parkinson's and other neurodegenerative diseases like cancer, and it's not going to be enough just to use a single drug we're gonna need cocktails of therapy, just like chemotherapy and cancers. We need to combine differently acting drugs that hopefully will hit the progressive course in different ways, different aspects of the biology. So I think we're not there. It's an active field. And I think there's a lot of hope for the future in disease modifying therapies. I wanted to give Karen and Liz an opportunity to jump in here to see if they want to contribute to this conversation, if anything they want to ask about the, the disease. Um, in terms of contributing or even asking the question, I think um, one of the big things I know I'm most hopeful of for um, 
people living with Parkinson's and where we are really pushing and really trying to assist is to help the researchers and clinicians in our community um, get funded so that they can understand what is going on. What is that underlying piece to help in those diagnostic uh, tools that they're looking to develop and most importantly, to develop those disease modifying therapies. And interestingly, um, as Dr. Lang spoke about, it's not just gonna be one treatment, um, it will most likely be a cocktail, but also um, understanding where I was really impressed with the field in Parkinson's being new uh, to this area in the last two years, was the amount of research and work in rehabilitation as well. Um, the studies looking at just beyond uh, the drug base, but also what can people do on their own time, whether it comes to exercise, rehabilitation, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, those were areas that I was very impressed in terms of the work that's being done there for people living with Parkinson's. So um, hopeful uh, for the future, but also really impressed with the work that has been done to date too. Yeah, I think there's a quite significant research isn't there on things like the impact that exercise in the early days of the disease have on the long-term prognosis. I always thought my dad should do more dancing. I thought that sounded like a good way to stay mobile. Um, Liz, anything you want to add to this part of the conversation? Otherwise, I am going to turn to you next because I'm hoping that you'll kind of help us set the second part of the stage, and that is speak a little bit to the patient perspective, some of your experiences um, maybe around diagnosis, some of the best treatments or, or care that you've received, but also maybe some of the challenges that you faced. Sure, I can. I, I think, um, you know, when I hear Dr. Lang talk about the work that's happening, it's it's exciting because it, it gives you a level of hope, which I'll be frank, you don't necessarily have when you receive a diagnosis for Parkinson's. If you dig into the literature or look online, there isn't, there isn't um, much out there that gives you a lot of immediate hope. And I think once you start to engage with the community and, and for myself, you know, connecting through Parkinson Canada and through care providers here, um, also that opportunity to think about what can you do to help support yourself to be healthy and, and doing everything you can in the meantime. Um, things like exercise, having those kind of supports are, are really, really important. But also knowing that that work is continuing because it is it is a bit of an isolating condition, especially in the early stages where I am now. It's not super visible to people. So um, while it might be something that I'm living with, and it's certainly my family are, have awareness of it um, in my day-to-day -day life, uh, most people would probably be surprised to know that it's something that I'm, I'm dealing with regularly and that I have to work with. So thinking about um, knowing that a future for people would be that there may be some opportunity for clear diagnosis at the beginning, and perhaps an opportunity to change the trajectory would be very, very exciting, um, as well as the work that happens now, even supporting uh, individuals like me as we kind of walk along this journey that is different for everybody. So it's hard to know exactly how it's going to go. Great. Um, Liz, so I'm super grateful for the, the perspectives of a person living with Parkinson's you brought to this discussion, but I think there are a lot of other things that, that you are currently contributing or people like you can contribute to advance some of the uh, policy advocacy and also some of the, the research on this. Do you want to speak a little bit to, to the role you've played with Parkinson's Canada and others? Sure. So as someone who's always been relatively healthy, it, it's been a, a new role to play. And, and one of the things that happens with Parkinson's a little bit, or at least my experience is that you lose your voice um, to some extent, um, just the, literally, uh, and, and also sort of the, the, the nature of the, the condition, there's a little bit of stigma associated with it when you're a bit younger, all of those pieces. So there's, there's been a couple of ways where I've really felt I've been able to, to have a, a, a role 
the first of those was really participating in the Parkinson Advisory Council that uh, Parkinson Canada have established. Really appreciate the opportunity to bring that patient perspective. It's it's not just individuals living with Parkinson's, but also um, caregivers um, to help shape uh, the where Parkinson Canada is focusing. Um, and as issues come up, like like the, the pesticide issue, that opportunity to to give a voice from a, a, a perspective of somebody impacted by it on how the organization might respond and how how um, as a you know as a collaborative group um, that might impact the community as well has been really really important. Um, so I very much appreciated the opportunity to participate in that way, and, and it's been I, I know it's new for Parkinson Canada, and and it's always hard. Those engagement things are always an interesting dance of you know, how does that play out? But I, I think it's been, um, for, I'll speak for myself, a really positive experience. And, and we've kind of all gotten a little bit better at it as we've gone along and as the committee started to, to form and shape. The, the other way that I've been able to participate is, is through being a participant in research. That was a decision that I made fairly early on that I would pursue opportunities. Um, maybe not everything and anything that comes along, but it, it's been really important to be part of those networks. It, it lets me feel like... Um, I can see what's coming on the horizon, helps me contribute. And there's usually a little something in it for you as well in terms of learning a little bit more about the condition or understanding um, other aspects that you might not have thought about. And so that's that's been really, really positive as well. And I think it's really, really important because this isn't a condition that has um, such a big population that you can count on everybody else to participate and do those things. It really is something that, that we need to see more evolution on because it, it's not something that has made, you know, despite... I think some of the really exciting things that we heard about a little bit earlier for Dr. Lang, there's still a long way to go in understanding the condition and being able to change the trajectory and, and know that future generations won't have to live with it. I love the way you phrase that, particularly the, you know, you lose your voice and then you gain voice through the different things you're doing. You know, one of the things I remember with my father's care was some of the challenges we faced in, in getting um, sort of high quality, I call them ancillary healthcare services, almost making sure that that we, you know, he had access to a physiotherapist who had some familiarity with Parkinson's or a speech pathologist. Some of the other issues we encountered were just continuity of care issues, making sure that all the people that he worked with, his neurologist, his neurosurgeon, his, his family doctor, and eventually geriatricians and others, that everybody had the same information. That uh, goes, I think, to some of the sort of what we're seeing in terms of best practices in clinical care. I wondered if any of you wanted to speak to that piece a little bit. Maybe I can jump in first of all with the patient. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Say, I, I um, feel incredibly fortunate to have access to a multidisciplinary clinic that specializes in movement disorders. It, it's been invaluable, um, you know, both the, the medical care, but it's the ancillary, the physiotherapist in particular for me with where I'm at and that ability to work through um challenges with keyboarding and all of those things that have helped me continue to work and continue to be productive in the work that I do. So I'm a healthcare provider by background as well. And so looking at the work that came out of Parkinson Canada um, with recommendations around settings for care sort of spurred me to say, I need to see what I can do to get myself referred into that kind of a setting so that I've got that opportunity and access to that. I know my experience has been really quite positive. I was quickly uh, quickly sent for an assessment and quickly diagnosed, but many others have not had the same experience. And, and that's where it's really important for healthcare providers as well, and others in the system to um, have awareness of Parkinson's, at least understand what it looks like, when to refer, where to refer, so that people aren't left uh, for several years waiting to understand what's what's happening with them. That's really helpful. I think it highlights also the need for wider services, 
coverage of these services is very critical and often it's not available. I think one aspect, a good aspect, surprising fallout of COVID is the recognition of the use of virtual care. And I think a lot of physiotherapists and other specialists in this um, field are now quite effectively using virtual assessments and virtual care in a way that they would not have imagined previously. And simple things like being able to see a patient in their own home environment and being able to see how they function in that environment has been very valuable. I think what's been really um, interesting in the last year, um, Parkinson Canada decided to do these discussions across the country to really understand, because we know healthcare in Canada is provincially regulated, and uh, to understand what healthcare is like in terms of for people living with Parkinson's um, in Manitoba, Ontario, and across the country. And one of the resounding things we heard was the need for more access to care. I know Liz has had a positive experience, which is really great for her, but we've also heard stories of people who are waiting a long time to see somebody who could potentially give them that diagnosis. And so the discussions we are having is what can we do as an organization to advocate on behalf of patients uh, so that they can have access to care, but at the same time, working uh, with the clinicians such as Dr. Lang and his team to understand what can we do with them to ensure people are, because it's not their issue either, they can only work as fast as they can. I think there's the model of virtual care as well, but what are some models we can consider? And I think that's really uh, a place we are hoping uh, to make a dent in and really working collaboratively, not only with the patient community, but with also the clinical community and hopefully governments as well. That may be a good place to actually turn to um, kind of some of the priorities you're seeing when you're hearing from members. We've heard a bit from Dr. Lang and a bit from Liz in terms of where, where we need to enhance access to services, where we need to enhance access to, to treatments. Are there other priority areas that members are bringing to your attention? So access to care definitely is a big one. Um, I think one of the other things was, do we need more movement disorder specialists? And we've looked at the cost to that. And I don't know if that's an area that we can really push on. But interestingly, and maybe uh, Dr. Lang can speak more about this, is that we do not only have movement disorder specialists, but we have many community neurologists. And is there a potential to use them in a way that they may not be used to? At the same time, how do we call upon the people like the physiotherapists, um, occupational therapists, speech therapists, to get them even more specialized in Parkinson's? And so I know it's a model that uh, Dr. Lang and his team have been talking about, which is the hub and spoke model. And um, it's something we're really interested to further explore to see if that will help people to um, what I would say better access to care. So you don't have to necessarily go to a central place, but maybe in your local community, there will be people who could really help you when it comes to Parkinson's. And so maybe Dr. Lang, I would actually turn it to you to maybe speak a little bit more about that model. Yes, I think as you've implied, um... We don't have enough movement disorder specialists to see everybody with Parkinson's. And we've already said Parkinson's is growing rapidly. So it's gonna get worse rather than better. And as much as I think we do need to train more movement disorder specialists, uh, I think it is possible to manage with people in the community as you've already indicated, Karen. And we've thought about the idea of developing uh, this hub and spokes concept or model where the hubs would be the academic centers in Ontario, such as ours in Toronto. And we would have connections with interested, uh, educated colleagues. And I think the, those two aspects uh, are critical. 
these would be people that would be educated to understand the state of the art way of diagnosing and managing typical Parkinson's. They don't need to be doing research, but they certainly need an understanding of the field. And they have to have the time and, and show the dedication and interest in seeing patients with uh, Parkinson's and related disorders. And so what we would end up doing is having patients in the community largely seen and managed in these smaller uh, centers or in these, these practices that are connected by the spokes to the hub so that when patients are needed for clinical trials, if there's a new important clinical trial for a disease modifying therapy, the people in the community know about that trial and are sending the earliest diagno diagnosed patients into the trials or they're participating in other clinical trials. And we are feeding back to those um, uh, community centers with new information, et cetera, so that it's a, a dynamic, it's a bilateral dynamic. And the same obviously would apply for the multidisciplinary care programs as well. It sounds quite exciting and also uh, quite effective. And I feel in some ways we are entering into a period of rich healthcare policy discussion, I think post-COVID, as one of you mentioned, but also uh, reflecting on recent agreements between the NDP and Liberal Party to, to further things like pharmacare and dental care. Um, I think a lot of health policy, uh, rich health policy discussions will be had. I wonder, Karen, there is a challenge here in terms of how you advocate uh, in the health policy space with kind of a split responsibility between the provinces and the federal government. And I wonder if you've given some thought to how you might advance some of these, these ideas, these best practices, get them to happen. Well, I think um, one thing when we talk about getting these things into practice, we just have to reiterate over and over and again what our what our requests are. Um, you know, access to care being a big one. So, but what does that mean? And I think there's still a lot we're trying to work through. And one of the things I think is going to be important moving forward when we even think about this model about this hub and spoke. It's great to talk about it, but we got to put it in motion. So where we as an organization are looking at is how can we support this put it in action and to show the governments that this works, that this is improving quality of life. Um, it's proving wait times. Um, those are the things we're really looking at, whether it's through funding, a research grant, there's a lot of ways we can do that. At the same time, at the federal level, uh, although like healthcare is within provinces, we still have demands at the federal level when it comes to research, you know, funding research and the commitment to funding research at the federal level, but also um, the cost of uh, drugs. And so if we think about the advent of disease modifying therapies potentially coming through for Parkinson's disease, we really need to start talking about the cost. We want to make it accessible to people as well. So those are things we could talk about federally, but provincially, it is a very big focus of ours as an organization is the access to care. We've heard it loud and clear from our community that um, the wait times, we do need to reduce them. And what's the best way to do that? And that's where we really got to work with the community on that. So we've covered a good number of different priority policy priorities that, that might be advanced in the next little while. Uh, one that I hear about often is kind of the, the potential relationship between pesticides and Parkinson's. Is that something on your radar, Karen, or something you hear about? 
Definitely, it's a it's a really hot topic. Um, we hear um, a lot about what's the linkage between pesticides and Parkinson's, and there's definitely a strong association between pesticides and, and Parkinson's. Um, but um, what's interesting, as uh, Dr. Lang said before, is probably not one thing that's causing Parkinson's. So um, it could be um, pesticides with your DNA. So the whole epigenetics piece is that's linking to um, the onset of Parkinson's. So one of the things I think we play a really important role here as Parkinson Canada is to provide information for people. What's the scientific literature right now about pesticides and Parkinson's? And then really working with our community and our governments to understand where can we make some inroads when it comes to that? And so that's an area that we are very actively looking into and to understand where we can really support people living with Parkinson's on. One of the things we want to do today is, is really highlight the work of Parkinson's Canada, the things that you do to help people impacted by the disease. I wonder if you could actually share a little bit more about uh, the work of your organization. We're really focused on transforming the lives of people living with Parkinson's, and we do that in multiple ways. Um, we provide programs and support. Um, we have an information referral hotline, so if you have any questions related to Parkinson's, you know, people can call, get support there. We have a vast network of support groups, um, so um, you can join one as a caregiver, um, depending where you are in your journey with Parkinson's. Um, at the same time, we have a lot of education opportunities, um, and most recently, we've partnered with the Davis Finney Foundation in the US. Uh, they have a, a manual that people really like, but it's very US centric. We know the healthcare system is completely different here in Canada. So we've taken, taken that book and Canadianized it and are really looking forward to launching that in June. But at the same time, um, we are also really taking the time to listen to the community as Liz has talked about uh, through our Parkinson Advisory Council. And one of the things we were hearing quite often was this um, need to understand what was available in the community. So who is somebody who really understands Parkinson when it comes to physiotherapy or someone with speech pathology um, background that could really help them? And so uh, working with the research and clinical community and designing what we're calling a care finder, um, because a lot of patients will be going on to look what's in my community. And even those in the clinic, I, I know nurse practitioners, uh, movement disorder specialists do sometimes try to take the time to do that, but they don't have the same amount of time necessarily. So we want to make that readily available to to the community. So resources that are beneficial to the community is really what we're focused on. Same time, advocacy is a strong part of where we are moving forward as an organization. And it's really about raising the voice of people living with Parkinson's, hearing what they think is important and where we think we can play a role when it comes to provincial governments and federal governments. And of course, research. Research is critical um, in providing hope, but we can't do it alone. We really have to work closely with the patient community, as Liz has talked about. They are critical in research engagement, as well as the research and clinical community. They are our experts, but they got to work with the patient community to really understand what is the disease and then discovering those disease modifying therapies and most importantly, improving the lives of people living with Parkinson's. So those that's the big breadth of what we do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're really trying to transform lives. I'm so impressed by everything that Parkinson's Canada is doing. I think that that care finder sounds particularly helpful for those living with Parkinson's and will make a big difference in, in, in their lives. When I actually reflect on everything I've heard today, I, I think that the common theme that is, is jumping out to me is hope and optimism in terms of the innovations that we're going to see, whether it's on the research front, the care front, or the patient experience front. I want to thank you, Dr. Lang. 
Liz and Karen for sharing your perspectives today, your expert insights, your honest feelings and your experiences. It is clear from this conversation, while there's a lot of work to be done to improve the lives of those living with Parkinson's and the healthcare system that supports them, there is indeed movement by way of innovation and advocacy. We are looking forward to seeing how this new momentum will continue to promote better health outcomes for the Parkinson's community and their loved ones. Many thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at sanchezhealth.ca and on our Twitter at sanchezhealth. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.